This episode of the American Birding Podcast is sponsored by our friends at Beautyo Books. Remember that ABA members get a discount on all orders from Beautyo Books. You can check them out at beautyobooks.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. The traditional news media has been falling all over itself in the last week with regard to weird flying objects over the Great Lakes that apparently require military plane intervention to destroy. The objects have been described as balloons, as UFOs in the traditional sense of not knowing what they are rather than the Hollywood extraterrestrial sense, not that you'd know it from a lot of the discourse. One was described as an octagonal structure with strings attached. I have no compelling insight into this real news item. This is not a real news item podcast. But, you know, that part of the Great Lakes is a hot spot for birds of prey migration. And a rough-legged hawk could maybe be described as an octagonal structure, at least very loosely octagonal. I was drawn recently to a news item from last year, though, that fits the overlap between birds and aerial vehicles. You like that segue a bit more explicitly. A group of researchers from Penn State and elsewhere were using hummingbirds as a model for small aerial robots and in doing so came to some insight into hummingbird flight as a result, which is kind of cool. Hummingbirds famously have a somewhat unique musculoskeletal system that drives that famous flight. They don't just move their wings in a relatively simple back and forth motion, but pull their wings in three directions, up and down, back and forth, and twisting. And perhaps most notably, they can apply the same amount of torque in order to pull the wings in all those directions, which is unique among vertebrates. Insects can do this too. And I'm curious as to whether the researchers consider them as a model and why a hummingbird would be better for this sort of project other than, you know, being a little bit cooler. But that's not really explained in the paper, which focuses on how the researchers simulated the forces generated by the hummingbird wings and then sort of back calculated the required torque and then use that torque to calculate their little robot model. There's some fluid dynamic stuff that is beyond me, but the researchers seem excited that this is a breakthrough for development of aerial vehicles. Now let's see a fighter jet take these out. That might be overkill. How about a butterfly net? On the show this week, our first belted Kingfisher listener submission from South Africa, of all places, Cassie Karsten shares his first experience with belted Kingfisher from right here in the U.S., But first, what birder isn't infatuated with the colors and patterns they find among the birds we see? Researcher Whitney Sai Nakashima of the Moore Lab of Zoology spends her time thinking about what these fantastic colors and the ability to perceive them tell us about bird evolution. She joins me after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of February 2023. A crested caracara photographed in Fulton County, Illinois, represents a likely first record for this species in that state. It wasn't all that long ago that crested caracara was staging something of an eruption across the continent with extralimital records turning up from California to the Canadian Maritimes. It's worth noting, though, that there is a previous report from Illinois that was not accepted by the State Ornithological Committee on account of Providence, not an uncommon thing for potential vagrant caracaras in past decades. In any case, the photos confirm this one, and I haven't heard any talk about captive origin with this bird. It's also Caribbean rarity season in South Florida, which in the last couple weeks has seen records of Lasagra's flycatcher and Bahama mockingbird, both of which were still hanging around into this month. 
Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook or on ABA Community. You don't have to be a birder for a long time to appreciate that birds are capable of producing an astonishing array of colors, patterns, even those beyond the capability of our weak human eyes to discern. And hidden in that avian rainbow are clues to bird taxonomy and evolution that we're only now beginning to appreciate. And that is the work of my guest, Whitney Sai Nakashima, is a PhD candidate at UCLA and a researcher at Occidental College's Moore Lab of Zoology. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you for your time. Hi, Nate. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm excited to talk about bird colors because it's something that I think draws a lot of people to birds. It's just the the variety of bird colors out there. There's this rainbow of avian possibilities just outside people's door. Um, I imagine when you start talking about bird colors that that people get pretty excited about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like most people, I was really drawn to the incredible coloration of birds. You know, they can produce these super bright yellows, greens, and blues. They can even make iridescent color. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, they can make these, you know, deepest blacks and almost every shade of brown imaginable. Um, So, yeah, talking to people about bird coloration is awesome. I'm really excited about it. And so are other people, especially birders who, you know, have seen them in the wild. Oh, yeah. You get someone talking about the iridescence and a hummingbird's gorget and they'll go on forever and ever and ever. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. It's also pretty incredible because birds can produce colors that we can't even see. So birds can make ultraviolet coloration, um, which is really incredible. And something that we can really only detect using different tools like, you know, digital photography, spectrometers, or, you know, black lights. Yeah. So what actually causes color in bird feathers? I know it can be a a wide variety of things, but what are some of the common mechanisms for, for bird color, feather color, I should say? Yeah. So there are kind of two main classes of color. Um, We kind of categorize them as pigment coloration and structural coloration. Um, They're both pretty pigment-based, but pigment coloration produces a lot of our kind of blacks and browns um, via the pigment melanin, whereas carotenoid coloration produces a lot of the reds, oranges, and yellows that we see. And then when we talk about structural coloration, that's kind of a combination of layering pigments with feather microstructure um, to produce this kind of unique color. And so structural colors are tend to be things like blue and green and purple in birds. And birds can't actually produce any um, blue pigments on their own. And so any blue that you see in a bird is going to be structural coloration. And the interesting thing is when you dip kind of a blue feather in water and bring it out and it's all wet, it'll just look gray. Um, And then once you dry that feather out, it actually looks blue again because it's the way the light is kind of reflecting off of that feather microstructure. Yeah, whenever I've sort of talked about that to people, it it sort of blows their mind. It blows my mind when I pick up like a bluebird feather or a blue jay feather where I live and and you start looking at it and you're like, how can this not be a part of like baked in? I guess it is sort of baked in. The the difference is sort of academic between, well, that's that's your work as an (laughs) academic, (laughs) between the the pigments and the, the structure. But the fact that like, it's it's the structure, it's the light that's hitting that and then hitting my eye that makes that sort of vivid blue color is is such an amazing concept to me. Yeah, and it's probably kind of easiest to think about iridescent colors, you know, mm-hmm. light yeah, hitting yeah, yeah. iridescent feathers in different ways. 
um, which is why kind of blue is an interesting one to talk to people about because they don't realize it. <laughs> yeah, even that blue can look different in different lights. I mean, most like a blue bird is going to look mostly that kind of deep kind of royal blue most of the time. But sometimes, you know, every birder has experienced that when you're when you're out and you're in low light situation and you look at a blue bird, it doesn't look like much. It looks like gray or, or you know, whatever, as opposed to blue. And then when that light hits it at the right time, it's just bang, like right in your face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty incredible how, you know, birds that are really brightly colored can actually manage to camouflage with their background, depending on kind of the light environment or their habitat environment. Um, One example I like to talk about a lot is parrots. You know, they're this really brilliant, bright green color. And so you would imagine that, you know, they stand out in kind of any environment. But, you know, parrots, they feed super high in the canopy um, in these really green trees that are, you know, have bright colored fruit. And so they actually really blend in with their background. They're almost impossible to find. Yes. I, I have <laughs> in situations. I was in Florida uh, last last uh, fall and I was specifically looking for, for parrots, for the sort of introduced parrots. And we ran into a flock of one of the, um, I forget what it was, like, canary winged or, or white winged or whatever they're called these days. And uh, you can hear them because parrots are loud and, and they, you know they're there, but they're so hard to find in those trees because not only do they, are they the same color, which is obviously an adaptation, but like they're sort of the same shape as some of the leaves too. Uh, yeah. They got, they got a lot of things going on there. Definitely. <laughs> so when you were looking at a feather through like a microscope or a really powerful optical equipment are you able to see the structural aspects of it that sort of cause that color to manifest in our eyes like are you able to like what are you looking for when you look at a feather like that yeah using kind of scanning electron microscopy you can actually see kind of different feather structures and i am not a personal expert on this but Mm -hmm. a lot of the work that um allison schultz has done at the natural history museum in los angeles Um, has been looking at kind of different structural coloration and different feathers to see what that microstructure looks like. Mm -hmm. And they actually, you know, discovered this super black feather structure, which basically absorbs a lot more wavelengths of light than just a standard black melanin feather. Yeah. Um, And those microstructures kind of help with that. Yeah. What what species do you see that sort of super black in? Um, So often in Ramphacelis tanagers. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The really fancy neotropical tanagers. Yes, definitely. And yeah. they actually, a lot of those birds have, you know, really black pigment or really black plumage. And then next to it is a really, really bright, like red patch. Right. Um, and so it's thought that maybe, you know, they use that contrasting color to really make this pat- one patch stand out. Yeah. Well, that brings up an interesting question about, you know, what birds see and what they are you know, how they are perceiving these sort of very dramatic color, color patterns, colors, just colors in general. What is the difference between a bird eye and a human eye? And what can yeah. they see that we cannot see? Birds actually can see ultraviolet. Um, so they can see all of the colors that we can see and also ultraviolet coloration, um, which is pretty incredible. And the way that they do this is that they have four different cone types in their eyes. Whereas we as humans only have three cone types in our eyes. Um, And so those cone types are kind of loosely associated with red, green, blue, and then UV light um, in birds. And so it kind of gives them, you know, another dimension of color. And so we can't really begin to imagine how birds are perceiving the world. (laughs) We can only kind of 
try to overlay, you know, our visual system with kind of UV overlaid on top. How do we perceive the ultraviolet spectrum? I've seen photos of, of birds under black lights and stuff, and so you can kind of see it shining. But, you know, what, how, does that, how does that work in, uh, in bird biology? Yeah, definitely. So what we do to try to kind of figure out what birds are seeing is we'll, for me particularly, I'll take an image of a bird specimen from a museum in kind of human visible spectrum, and that's okay. blocking out all UV light and colors. Um, And then I'll take a separate photo in UV. And so it blocks off every wavelength of light except for UV. And so we can see those two things kind of separately. We have our human visible spectrum on one, and then we have our UV. And for the UV, it really just kind of appears as like brighter light than, um, than, you know, non-UV. So you're really only getting kind of two different things. You're getting a UV that's kind of uh, brightly colored and a non-UV. Okay. Um, yeah. So then we can kind of overlay those to say, okay, this patch is blue and it also reflects in UV. So we'll talk about it like maybe you have a patch that's UV plus blue or UV plus green or just green. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Are all birds able to perceive UV light in the same way or is it differ by, by bird family, bird habitat? Yeah, definitely. Um, So it turns out that birds actually can be more or less sensitive to UV. And so, you know, something that I'm really interested in looking at is kind of birds that are more sensitive to UV. Is that due to, you know, birds of that species are also producing UV colors in their bodies or in their feathers? Um, Or does it have more to do with their habitat? Um, Because it's kind of, thought that maybe birds in more open habitats um, may be less sensitive to UV because there's a lot more kind of UV information coming in from the sun sun, and all of these kind of brighter light um, conditions. Whereas birds that are kind of in closed habitats or in forests, it might be better for them to have this kind of better UV discrimination because of that low light setting where you have kind of variable amounts of UV penetrating through the forest. We also know that a lot of um, plants and leaves and fruits reflect UV. So it's a really complicated environment. And so, you know, having this better UV vision might help them in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it sort of makes intuitive sense that if you are a bird that lives in a dark area, like a rainforest, like some of these tanagers that you're talking about that are particularly bright or ultra black or whatever, that the colors would need to be more extreme to stand out in those situations. Yeah. Or, or I guess alternately you could you could go in a different direction and be more cryptic and have a really piercing song or voice or whatever. You've got to have something that's going to stand out and mm-hmm. it could be light, it could be sound, it could be whatever, but the, the birds are essentially, evolution is pushing them to solve this problem. And Yeah, definitely. And it turns out, you know, these tanagers, most of them are pretty sensitive to UV and they're also, you know, producing a lot of UV colors in their feathers, um, and they live in this forest habitat. So, you know, they kind right. of have all of the things that would, you know, kind of point us to thinking that, okay, it makes sense that they have, you know, good UV vision, UV in their plumage, and also can live in these closed habitats. Do you have any idea which sort of came first evolutionarily, bright colors or UV colors, or did they sort of arise concurrently? Yeah, that's a really great question and something that I'm trying to do right now. So Mm -hmm. um, 
there is a gene in birds called the SWS1 opsin, where we can kind of predict whether a bird's visual system is more or less sensitive to UV. Okay. And, you know, recently there's been a lot of advances in kind of genomic techniques. And so there's a huge availability of genomic data out there. And so it's kind of the first time where we've had, you know, a wide variety of genomic data and also the ability to um, analyze color on really broad scales with digital photography. So I'm looking kind of broadly across the bird tree of life, um, trying to get, you know, one of every family of bird, analyze whether their um, visual system is more or less sensitive to UV, and then also analyze the colors that they're producing to kind of try to get at that question of which came first. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. And also sort of it makes me think, you know, how far back in the evolutionary history did this stuff develop in the first place? You know, we've learned a lot in the last 20 years or so about, you know, feathered dinosaurs. So the ancestors of birds had feathers that in some cases may have been as colorful as some of the birds that we see now. You know, did they have the ability to, they, they must have had the ability to see color, perceive color, maybe even perceive UV. So did these feathers, these changes in the feathers evolve before even modern birds were here? And they've been sort of living this way for as long as there have been birds, however many hundred million years. Yeah, I mean, it seems evidence kind of points to it being kind of an independent evolution of ultraviolet vision in birds. So it seems like the kind of ancestral bird had probably a not as sensitive um, visual system to UV. Um, And then you know, feathers also seem to have, you know, some some convergent evolution there going on where it's like, I actually don't really know <laughs> well, <laughs> on, in, the, in terms of feathers. Right? But yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but for visual system, I definitely know that it seems that um, the kind of not as sensitive to UV visual system was ancestral in birds. And then this UV visual system um, has evolved kind of multiple times across okay. the bird tree of life. So um, in, you know, tanagers, it also has evolved in things like gulls, which is pretty really? interesting. You think of them being so dull and monocolored. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the hypotheses there is that it might be good for prey detection. So, um, you know, as they're hunting over these kind of highly reflective surfaces of water, yeah, okay. they may be able to detect fish better with a more UV sensitive visual system. Because we know oh. that fish actually can um, make UV colors as well. Everything makes UV. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> makes, do we make UV? I have no idea. We could. <laughs> no, yeah, why not? We, we would never know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is there a difference between um, how diurnal birds and nocturnal birds perceive color? Have there been sort of evolutionary costs in what a bird that is active in a low light situation can see versus a bird? You know, obviously low light in the rainforest is different than low light hunting at night, but you know, maybe there's some overlap there. Maybe not. I have no idea, but is, is there a difference between what they see and how they see? I haven't looked specifically into kind of diurnal versus mm-hmm. nocturnal birds, but I think that would be definitely something interesting to think about. You know, there are kind of two different types of cells in the eyes of birds. So there are rods and there are cones. So we talked about the cones where, you know, birds, the cones are kind of more to do with the color vision in birds, um, whereas rods have more to do with kind of light sensing um, 
and movement sensing. And so, you know, it could be that in birds that are nocturnal, they might have kind of more developed rods. Is there a group of birds that you have been most surprised by their ability or inability to perceive some of these colors? In terms of the SWS1 option, I think the most surprising one is hummingbirds. So according to kind of the SWS1 option analysis that I've been doing, it seems that either the SWS1 option isn't present in hummingbirds or that it has a kind of not as UV sensitive visual system which is really interesting because, you know, work out of Cassie Stoddard's lab at Princeton, she does a lot of um, studies of broad-tailed hummingbirds, and they've done a lot of behavioral studies to show that hummingbirds can really discriminate between UV colors and non-UV colors very, very well. And so to either not find this option in them or to have it like be linked to a kind of not UV sensitive visual system is really interesting um, and something that definitely, you know, needs further study. Um, so it's possible that they've kind of evolved a UV sensitive visual system in a very right. different way than any other right. bird. Yeah, that's what that's what I was going to ask if that was the case, because that, that would make sense because you think of things like hummingbirds. Well, one, they're brightly colored. So you'd think that they would be able to have this sort of UV perception and their gorgets and on the crowns and all their stuff, all that stuff, because they certainly seem to show those off when they're displaying. And two, you know, think of insects like bees kind of famously having this ability to follow UV paths to flowers, which have evolved a lot of really fancy UV stuff. Oh, yeah. hummingbirds are, you know, nectar feeders. It stands yes. to reason that they should be able to perceive it in some way. Definitely but they've come up with their own way, I guess. Yeah, maybe they've come up with their own way. And actually with um, taste, Mm -hmm. they've actually found that hummingbirds have come to kind of a sweet perception in a unique way also. So they have these other sensory systems that have evolved kind of uniquely. Um, I know that in orioles and hummingbirds, this kind of sweet taste receptor has evolved. separately and so yeah it's really something interesting to you know study further yeah so where are hummingbirds sort of on the bird tree of life are they considered like a like a basal species like towards the beginning or are they like i mean they're so so different from any other bird group it makes sense that they would have like evolved like split away a long long time ago yeah so they have split like pretty deeply um, in the tree of life, the bird tree of life. Um, They're actually most closely related to like swifts um, that come out of a clade that seems to have been nocturnal. And so it's possible that, you know, at some point that whole clade kind of lost this UV sensitive vision and then hummingbirds have, you know, just gotten it back over time. Regained it. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. What are some of the really big questions that you're excited about potentially finding answers to with regards to bird colors and, and vision? Yeah, I think one of them is really thinking about, you know, what is kind of driving the evolution of this like incredible diversity of colors? You know, does it have to do more with the visual system or, you know, sexual selection where, mm-hmm. you know, it's 
the colors that they produce are kind of more related to, you know, the birds that are perceiving them and important for mating, or if it's really more, you know, due to things like light environment or natural selection, so habitat um, and things like that. Or in the case of a lot of things, I imagine it's probably a mix of both, like some sort of weird grab bag of a uh, bird, of, you know, some of them might be sexual selection, some of them might be light, some are both, some are neither, some are all sorts of things. It's, I mean, imagine it's, it's, there's something new to discover with every family of bird that you, you do this sort of analysis on. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm yeah, really excited to see it kind of on a really broad scale. So, you know, looking at which clades may, you know, be surprising and have UV sensitive vision versus which ones, you know, might not have UV sensitive vision and, you know, where it's evolved or been lost and gained. I think those are going to be really interesting. And then just thinking about kind of individual groups, um, you know, and even like within things like the fairy wren. So, the fairy wrens are an interesting group because, you know, they're kind of within the passeriformes and there's a lot of passeriforms that, you know, have this UV sensitive vision and fairy wrens are super bright. And so a lot of them do have UV sensitive vision, but there are some that have lost the UV sensitive vision. So oh. it appears that this can happen at kind of a really fast rate and, yeah. you know, um, at really shallow time scales. So I think it'll be interesting to look at, you know, dig a little deeper into some of these groups and see, is it really kind of ubiquitous when it is gained or, you know, is it kind of a grab bag and why? Yeah. Leave it to Australia to have a bird that is an exception to all the evolutionary (laughs) rules. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's just a lot that we don't know, you know, nobody's really studied all 10,000 plus species of birds. Um, And so one really exciting thing now is that, you know, there's a project called the 10,000 bird genome project where they're trying to make these kind of really high quality reference genomes for all birds. And so these kinds of studies are going to be, you know, more and more available to be done in the future, which is very exciting. Yeah. It's fascinating to think that the, the differences in how birds perceive color is not only at the family level, but at like the individual, like the genus level or even the species level as it is in fairy wrens. That's a pretty pretty wild stuff yeah definitely (laughs) (laughs) it means you've got to look at every single bird species and see yeah uh, yeah, hard to draw conclusions on that yeah that's neat yeah for sure yeah whitney sai nakashima is a phd candidate at ucla she is at occidental college's more lab of zoology which is just chock full of fascinating bird people um thank you so much for your time whitney i I really appreciate it this is a really cool conversation yeah thank you so much nate this was a lot of fun Hi, Nate. Cassie Carson's here from South Africa. It was during my first trip to the U.S. that I saw one, March of 2019. My wife and I attended two conferences in Ohio and then headed to Charleston, South Carolina, to visit family friends of hers. We were picked up at the airport and headed home, Kate sitting in the front while I settled into the back. First, we went past the Boeing factory, then across the Ashley River, and finally along Highway 17, heading west. In the front of the car, some serious catching up was taking place, and I sat in contented silence in the back, staring out the window, watching this new city as it flashed past. We were almost home, busy crossing either the Rantowls or Wallace Creeks before they empty into the Stono River, when it caught my attention, the briefest glimpse out of the corner of my eye, triggering the feather-light, always birding senses. I gave myself a minor case of whiplash, swinging my head around, trying to see it clearly. 
Immediately, I knew it was a kingfisher, perched on a power line that stretched across the water. The dagger-like bull, the crest combed over the back of the head, and the stocky, almost rectangular body. Unmistakable. We have 10 kingfisher species back in South Africa. This one was big, somewhere between the giant and pied kingfishers, the largest two species back home. But the gunmetal grey cloaking it and the hints of rust on the white body, that was different. That was new. Only later, when I was scribbling the sighting into the field guide, did I note that this is the only kingfisher for most of the North American continent, and that the one I saw was a female. That same familiar joy was still flowing through my veins that evening while staring at the page in the guidebook. That joy that you only get when you see a kingfisher. I still get it every time I see one in my part of the world, and the next time I visit the States, I hope to feel it again. Happy birding. Thanks to Cassie Carstens. If you want to submit your Belted Kingfisher story, record it on the Voice Memo app on your phone and send it to podcast.aba.org. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press and Beautio Books, and more. You can find out how to do that at aba.org slash join. Special shout-outs this week to Jen Cookus of Baltimore, Maryland, Sarah and William Dittmar of Liberty, New York, Maureen Farrell and family of Brooklyn, New York, Brett Greenleaf of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Susan Hensler of Selbyville, Delaware, Dustin Holshuk of Mapleton, Illinois, Tiffany Highland of Swanton, Ohio, and David Shamus of Sands Point, New York, all of whom recently joined the ABA, noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for that. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who wonders why the U.S. Navy decided to name a military, I read belligerent, aircraft that can take off vertically after an osprey and not the more appropriate hummingbird. Technical production is by John Lowry, in whose experience hummingbirds are both ultraviolet and ultraviolet. So don't worry about the typo. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who wonders if pint-sized hummingbird drones will encourage the ongoing birds aren't real campaign or create a movement for things that really aren't birds. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association, but on Twitter we are at ABA. Well, the science behind it is cool. The last thing I need are friends sending me pictures of hummingbird-sized drones asking if it's a baby hummingbird. I already get plenty of that with the little clear wing moths. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week. <laughs>